0: Welcome to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings from Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. China's economy has long been a story of success and growth, and being the second largest economy in the world behind the US has given it an important and influential position in the global economy. But are there early indicators that it could be facing an economic slowdown? Joining me today on the podcast is Professor Michael Pettis, a professor in finance at Peking University. Big picture then, Uh, when you talk about economics in China and you're talking about the financial situation here, how would you describe it when you want to put it in context with the rest of the world?
1: Well, what's happening in China is something that we know quite a lot about. Everyone thinks that the last 30 or 40 years something really unique has happened in China, but China's following a development model that quite a number of other countries have followed. It's a sort of an investment-driven growth model. And China has followed the path very, very closely. The greatest difference between China and the precedents is that no country has ever taken the imbalances to the extreme that China has. This model always ends up with a debt problem, and in that, uh, the difference between China and the precedents is that we've never seen debt grow so quickly before, and and we've never seen such high levels of debt for a developing country. So, really, we know quite a lot about this model, and we we should have. Unfortunately, economists don't study history at all, but had they studied history, we would have known uh, uh, even a decade ago the direction that the economy was going in and where we're likely to end up. Basically, for 30 years, we've had a very rapid increase in investment, which is funded by a very rapid increase in savings. And the reason savings in China are the highest ever recorded is not because the Chinese people are fanatic savers. That's one of these silly stereotypes that that affects the debate. China has a very high savings rate, which is the same thing as having a very low consumption rate because it has the smallest household income share of GDP of any major economy. Households retain a very small share of GDP, so they consume a very small share. And everything they don't consume, by definition, is savings. Now, this model is very useful when you're severely underinvested, which China was in the 1970s. After 30 or 40 years of Maoism, uh, civil war, and anti-Japanese war, the country desperately needed investment. So this model made a lot of sense in the 1980s and 90s, and, and China used it very fruitfully. Investment grew extraordinarily quickly. The problem is that poor countries are poor not because they lack investment. They're poor because they typically lack the legal and financial and, and perhaps political, and educational institutions that encourage citizens to behave in a productive way, that allow citizens or incentivize citizens to behave productively. And what that means is that the amount of investment that China could absorb was not unlimited. There was uh, some amount, and we've long ago passed that amount. Unfortunately, the problem with this model is that it doesn't really know when to stop. It continued with very, very high levels of investment long after we had reached the point where investment was being misallocated. And when that happens, debt rises faster than debt servicing capacity. This has happened in every single case of uh,
0: of this growth model. This has happened before. Can you give me an example? Where's a good parallel to China? Uh,
1: Danny Roderick, a professor at Harvard, he says there are over two dozen cases of investment-driven growth miracles lasting more than a decade. The two that I look at the most are the Soviet Union in the 50s and 60s and Japan in the 70s and 80s. It was widely known at the time that those countries were growing so successfully that within a few decades they would become the largest economies in the world and the most technologically advanced. The Soviet Union grew from the devastation of World War II, and it was perhaps 1 or 2% of the world, all the way up to 14% of the world, which is roughly the size of China today by the late 60s. But then it followed with uh, two decades of stagnation, after which, by the time the Soviet Union broke apart, it had dropped to 4% of the world. So it lost uh, something like 70% of its share of global capacity. The Japanese story is a bit similar, except Japan was much bigger than either China or uh, the Soviet Union. At its peak, it was roughly 17% of the world. Two decades later, it had dropped to something like 6 or 7% of the world. So it lost roughly 60% of its share of global capacity. This is the typical story. It happens again and again. Now, a lot of people will say that China is unlikely to have a debt crisis. And I agree, China was never likely to have a debt crisis. But besides not understanding history, economists don't really understand debt very well. The problem with debt is not that too much debt might cause you to have a crisis. The problem with debt is that too much debt causes growth to slow down. So if you look at countries that have gone through this model, they've all ended up with a very rapid and unsustainable growth in debt. Some of them had crises, like uh, Mexico in 1982. Some of them didn't, like Japan after 1990. Instead, they had uh, what's called lost decades, periods of stagnation. In the long run, not having a crisis tends to be worse than having a crisis because when you have a crisis, it's a very brutal but very rapid resolution of the debt problem. When you don't have a crisis, you can keep the problem going for many more years and the debt tends to build up. Those are the options facing China, either a debt crisis, which I think is very unlikely, or a period of continued slowdown in growth. Basically, for the last 10 years, the choices facing Beijing have been an acceleration in debt or a deceleration in GDP growth. So far, they've chosen a little bit of the latter, mostly the former, an acceleration of debt. So the really big question for China is when do they address the debt? So in Australia and the U.S., the way you solve a debt crisis is typically you force the cost onto ordinary households. So in the U.S., they bail out the banks and then they'll raise taxes to pay for the bailout. In China, you can't really do that. Uh, The reason you can't do that is because the household share of GDP is already too small. And it's because it's so low that consumption is so low. The problem is that the source of the debt is from all of this misallocated investment. So you have to reduce investment. But if you reduce investment, unemployment goes up unless you can get consumption to go up. So if you can't force it onto the households, who else can you force it onto? Uh, small and medium enterprises, they're politically quite vulnerable. The problem there is that they're the only well-functioning part of the Chinese economy. And if you cripple them, China's not going to grow for 20, 30 years. So that only really leaves the government. Local governments have a lot of assets in China. So The way to resolve the problem in China, and Beijing understands this, they've been trying to do this for 10 years now, is to force the cost of resolving the debt onto local governments, forcing local governments to liquidate their assets and use the proceeds to pay down the debt. But I said they've been trying this for 10 years unsuccessfully, and the reason it's been unsuccessful is because it's politically very difficult to do that. The local elites, their power and their wealth is based on their ability to control local government-owned assets. Now, they first started to do this in 2007. Then-premier Wen Jiabao gave a very famous speech in March of that year in which he acknowledged the deep imbalances in the Chinese economy and said it would become the top priority of Beijing to rebalance growth. It is not a coincidence that within six months or so of that speech, we started to hear a great, in the Chinese press, about the so-called vested interests. I've been living in China since 2002. I'd never heard that phrase before. It was only around late 2007, 2008 that suddenly the vested interests were everywhere. The resolution to the Chinese rebalancing problem is politically very difficult to do. And that's why it was so important that President Xi spent the first five years of his term really consolidating power. Mm. The whole anti-corruption campaign has been about power consolidation so that he is in a position to implement these reforms. And now we have to see over the next two to three years whether they in fact implement the
0: reforms. But the way you describe it is that you can see on the horizon some sort of breaking point, tipping point.
1: A tipping point would be a crisis. I don't think we're going to have a crisis. We could.
0: A slowdown, a general slowdown is is on the horizon. Is it going to be to the extent that the world is going to have to adapt to? a smaller China?
1: It could be. Well, it'll be a bigger China, but it could be a smaller relative China. Uh, Just like Japan never shrank, but its share of global GDP shrank. That's possible. To me, that's not such an important issue. What matters is the impact on China and on the rest of the world. Now, uh, a lot of people say that if Chinese growth slows down, and I think it'll go well below 3%, that if it goes down, it'll be terrible for the Chinese people and terrible for the world. And they'll be wrong on both counts. Remember that Japan after 1990 its growth rates dropped from 6 to 7% to half a percent and that wasn't terrible for the world or for the japanese people and the reason is because japan rebalanced so rebalancing means that after many years in which household income grows much more slowly than gdp we now need to switch to a model in which household income grows quicker than gdp and that happened in japan and if China does it right, we could see GDP growth at 2 to 3%, but the growth in household income at 4 or 5%, which is pretty good. Most countries would kill for that. Ordinary people in China would be fine. It's the elite that would be squeezed, which is why it's politically so
0: difficult. Especially when you've got a government that has so much of their legitimacy uh, tied to the power of the economy here. A large amount of Australia's focus at the moment, and I'm I'm sure other countries are like this, is on China investing in Australia, but China doesn't have that problem, and that could be the the way the system's set up, the way the the culture works. There doesn't seem to be a lot of foreign investment here, or not to the extent that there is of China investing in other countries. Can you talk about if you think that that helps China, if it hinders it?
1: Well, China has uh, had a lot of foreign investment, and that's been the source of a lot of the technology transfers. But you know, there isn't very strong historical evidence uh, in favor of one way or the other, but I think companies in, in Australia and in the West generally are much more wary of, uh, of technology transfers now because I think there's been a bad experience in the past. But as for investments, one of the big myths that we have is that countries like Australia need foreign investment. It's nonsense. We live in a world of excess savings and insufficient demand. When a country invests money in another country, the reason it's doing so is not to generate growth. The reason it's doing so is to increase its share of of total demand. Country A exports capital to country B. Country A must run a surplus and country B must run a deficit. So when you say that Australia needs foreign investment or Chinese investment, You're also saying that Australia needs a current account deficit, and that's a really questionable proposition. Where China is really going to affect Australia is in the price of industrial commodities. China's consumption of industrial metals has been extraordinary. At one point, it was consuming 63% of all of the iron ore produced. Not even the United States at its peak, when it was nearly 50% of the world, consumed that share of iron ore, and China's only 14% of the world. The reason China consumes such enormous amounts of industrial metals is because its growth is so heavily dependent on infrastructure building. That has to come down, and we haven't seen the end of that yet. A lot of people think that because iron ore went from 190 plus dollars to 50 plus dollars that we're near a low. No, at the turn of the century, I think we were at 15 to 20 dollars. Prices have a long ways to go down, and they will go down quite a long ways in the next few years before the dust settles. That's how China will affect uh, Australia. And if you look at China's contribution to global growth, you have to look at the current account or the trade account. And China, of course, is running a surplus, not as big as, say, Germany's, which is a really big problem, but it's running a surplus. So the question is, as China adjusts, what happens to the Chinese surplus? The surplus should contract over time as a share of global GDP. If that happens, A Chinese slowdown and a Chinese adjustment is marginally positive for the world. It's not evenly distributed. If you are a producer of hard commodities, of industrial commodities, you're going to be hurt very badly. If you are a consumer, you'll do very well. If you are a manufacturer, you will do pretty well, unless you are in low technology, capital intensive areas like shipbuilding or steel, where the Chinese have made huge investments. Agricultural commodities will probably do fine because even if Chinese growth slows to 2 or 3%, which I expect, if household income continues to grow at 4 or 5%, most of China is still very poor. So as incomes grow, they move rapidly up the calorie scale and they end up uh, importing or consuming a lot more food. Mm-hmm. So agricultural commodities will be all right. But these are the ways we really have to think about China in the next 10 to 20 years. The World Bank just came out with a report, uh, the China 2030, saying they expect Chinese growth over the next 20 years to be 6.6%. That is, in my opinion, truly insane. There is absolutely no way. I think a good scenario would be if they could manage 3% growth. But those are the kinds of things we're going to have to get used to, a China growing much more slowly once it gets control of its debt but slower growth that is not necessarily disruptive for the world and not necessarily disruptive for China. The real cost of the adjustment will be the Chinese elites, the so-called vested interests. And that's why it is above all a
0: political problem for China, not an economic one. Okay, so you've talked about debt level and a slowdown of the economy. Then why such a push to develop infrastructure in other countries? Why the One Belt, One Road initiative? A lot of the roads and rail lines going into the Philippines at the moment is funded by Chinese money and Chinese companies. So what's the interest in doing that?
1: Well, from an economic point of view, remember when you export capital, you're importing demand. So if China exports a trillion dollars of capital to the developing world, it will run a trillion dollar surplus and the developing world will run a trillion dollar deficit using that capital to import Chinese goods. So you can think about One Belt, One Road in the same way as you can think of domestic infrastructure investment. It's a way of generating jobs. But even that has a historical context. If you look at the US, when it went through its period of tremendous growth and sort of came onto the world scene in the 1920s, the US expanded rapidly abroad, uh, particularly in Latin America. It's quite easy to lend a lot of money to countries that nobody wants to lend to. We saw the Soviet Union do that in the 50s and 60s. We saw the OPEC nations do that in the 70s. We saw Japan do that in the 1980s. This tremendous expansion abroad without much experience, which resulted in a lot of trophy acquisition and very, very risky lending. Already in China, there has been a recognition in the last four or five years that a lot of this investment in developing countries has turned out to be problematic. Uh, Venezuela, for example. Uh, China is the biggest lender to Venezuela and Venezuela is almost certainly uh, restructuring its debt. It's simply unable to pay. Mm. A lot of Chinese money has gone into Pakistan. The reason it's easy to lend money to Pakistan is because nobody else will lend money to Pakistan and there's a reason for it. So I think we've seen a lot of uh, foreign investment in the past in the same way we've seen other countries when they first really come out and a lot of it was perhaps done with a misunderstanding of the risks involved. Now, One Belt, One Road is going to continue, I think, because that's become such a personal project of the president. He's really closely associated with it. So it has to be seen as a success. Do you think it's a good idea, though? Geopolitically, it may make sense. Economically, I would say I don't know the specific projects, but I would say the historical precedents are almost unanimous. In every case where a country has first gone out in a major, major foreign investment program, it has ended up investing very badly. That doesn't prove that this must be the case with China, but when you speak to people involved on the Chinese side and you ask them, you know, what did your predecessors do wrong and what are you doing differently? Most of them, it's never even occurred to them that their predecessors did the same thing and did it wrong. So again, that doesn't prove anything, but it's hard for me to believe that they will be able to avoid making the mistakes that everybody else has made.
0: The allegations that Trump makes against China, China is devaluing the currency. Can you give the Beijing view of that and your view as an economist? Do you think that Trump has a case that he's made against China that is a valid one? There
1: certainly is a case that the global trade system is set up in a way that is very disadvantageous to countries that have very deep and flexible capital markets, uh, most specifically the U.S., but also the U.K., Australia, Canada, all the so-called Anglo-Saxon economies. And the reason is because we still have a view of trade that's dominated by an obsolete trade model, a 19th century trade model in which two countries trade because one produces a good more cheaply than another. That's the source of the trade imbalance and then the capital imbalance simply balances the trade imbalance. But we don't live in that world anymore. We live in a world in which capital flows are independent. But because trade and capital flows must balance to zero anyway, what happens now is that countries that export capital automatically run trade surpluses and countries that import capital run trade deficits. Now, typically, it should be developing countries that import capital. But in this world, nobody wants to lend money to developing countries, so they put money, the excess capital, in whichever market is best able to absorb it, and that tends to be the US, the UK, Australia, Canada, etc. So these countries are always net absorbers of foreign capital, net importers of foreign capital, not because they need it, but because the capital exporters need to put the money somewhere. And as a result, these countries always run current account deficits. So the trade imbalances are really caused by deficient demand in countries like Germany, Japan, and China. The trade imbalances are caused by policies at home in the surplus countries that constrain the domestic demand. But the solution to the problems are are wrong because the solution to the problems are based on this model of trade that hasn't been true for 150 years. So, for example, when the Trump administration goes after Mexico, because Mexico runs a very large bilateral trade surplus with the U.S., they've got it completely wrong. Mexico is actually a deficit country. It runs a trade surplus with the U.S., but it runs a trade deficit overall, and the trade surplus with the U.S. is not caused by policies in Mexico. It's simply because Mexico shares a border with the U.S., so when countries like Japan export to the US, they often do it through Mexico. Mm. So it shows up as a Mexican surplus, but it really isn't. It's a Japanese surplus. So that's really the problem with a lot of the trade discussions. They're right to complain, but they're complaining about the wrong things and their solutions are the wrong solutions. Mm. But one of the things that you know economists are not really allowed to say publicly is that the history of trade war, of trade contraction, is pretty clear. If you are a diversified economy with a deficit, you do benefit from trade war. The countries that get hurt the most are the surplus countries. And I think China understands that and is very worried about that. Unfortunately, I don't think this problem gets resolved in the next few years. My, my interpretation is that the trade environment will continue to get worse before it gets better.
0: That's Michael Pettis, a professor in finance at Peking University, and you have been listening to Asia Rising. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or on SoundCloud. Please leave a review and help spread the word. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at La Trobe Asia. That's it today for Asia Rising. Until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.